Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. You ever notice that when we compare ourselves, we typically don't compare ourselves up, but we compare ourselves down? You know, we find like the worst example and say, well, I'm not as bad as he is or she is, but you never compare yourselves to someone that has a higher standard than yourself or others. But the person that's judging you does that, but you yourself does. And we're going to look at a little bit of what's happening here is the comparisons that are not going to come out very well for some people. Now, as we come to chapter 10, just as a matter of review, Jesus has been instructing his disciples what it means to follow him. Remember, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. We've been hitting this because this is so important because one day you and I will stand before God and I believe there are many who are going to stand before him. And I pray none that hear my voice, either hearing it or watching me or here this morning, that will never hear the words depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. But we need to understand that there is a commitment. There is an uncompromising commitment that God requires demands from all of those who proclaim to be his children. Jesus sends out 72 men we saw last week to minister into the towns and planning on uh, on his visit to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to be visiting. So he sends out with 36 teams. There is advanced teams to say, Jesus is coming. Get ready. They were given authority and instructions to proclaim the kingdom of God through the sharing of the good news of the gospel and healing those with both physical and spiritual sickness. And he impresses upon these 72 men the urgency, the vulnerability, and the receptivity of their mission in announcing that the Messiah is coming. As we come to verse 12, our passage today, Jesus is continuing his instructions with the 72, along with some warnings about those who will reject his ministry. To illustrate this point, he references three cities in Galilee and compares them or their action with those of the ancient cities that were mentioned in the Old Testament. So together, Luke chapter 10, hope you have your Bibles. We're going to be needing those this morning. Look at verse 12 and we just read through 16 uh, together silently with me as you would please. I tell you, Jesus says, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town, the town that rejects Christ. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the mighty works were done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, setting in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 14. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And this last sentence, the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Father, give us wisdom as we tackle this difficult portion of scripture, as we try to understand it here 2,000 years later. As we study about cities that we've never visited and many times may have only heard just through scripture. But give us your wisdom. I pray that you would strengthen our minds and our hearts and help us to respond to your Spirit's work. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. 
Jesus had just instructed them that if anyone rejects their message of the Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming, if anyone rejects the ministry of the 72 men that he's sending out, they are to wipe the dust off their feet. Remember that from last week? Just wipe your dust off. That's just an example saying it's a symbolic saying, well, you know, pox on you. You you deserve what you get is kind of what's going on. Saying we will have nothing more to do with you. Jesus now is going to take a moment and he's going to begin to address three cities in their instructions to the 72. These three cities are Chorazan. Now, not much is known of this town. It doesn't exist today. It hasn't survived through the, through the history of time. It's only mentioned twice in scripture with both references to Jesus pronouncing woe upon them. That it is mentioned indicates that at the time of Jesus' ministry, it was probably an important center. It is never mentioned in scripture, as I said, that Jesus visited there, though it was most likely one of the many towns and villages that Jesus had traveled through and did some ministry in. As we come to the next city, we look at Bethesda. That's a village near the Sea of Galilee. And it was near where Jesus had fed fed 5,000 people. You remember that miraculous story? And earlier he had healed a blind man and where he had cured those who need of healing. So they had witnessed the full power of Jesus there in that city. And then he comes to Capernaum, one that most of us are much more familiar with. That was the base of operation for Jesus' ministry as he was traveling throughout the various uh, villages of Galilee. He would always come back to Capernaum. It seemed to be a very large town and where he performed many miraculous signs and wonders such as healing the centurion's servant, the paralytic who was lowered through the roof by his four friends. Remember, they took the roof off and lowered them down. He also healed a, a nobleman's son. But it was also where he called Matthew to leave his tax booth to come and follow him. So these are three biblical cities at the time of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had done many different things in those cities. And as one can imagine, the residents of these towns, when, when they, would, they, they had been the recipients and witnesses to many of the wonders of Jesus' ministry, Luke has recorded that the people of these towns were amazed at Jesus' teaching. They were attracted by his claims to be the Messiah, the one who would deliver them from the Romans. They were astonished at his power over sickness and death and astounded by his dominion and authority over the natural and spiritual supernatural world. Yet for all of that that they had witnessed, for all that they had received from him, in the end, the majority of these cities rejected the ministry and message and man of Jesus. As a reminder, Luke has been recording the various eyewitness accounts of Jesus in order to establish to his Gentile readers that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the very son of man or son of God who had come to seek and save those who were lost, that he was to come to ransom God's children from the works of Satan and to rescue them from the wrath of God, to give them confidence that this Jesus is who he says he was. This was the good news that Jesus had sent the 72 men to go out and proclaim. In in Jesus' first public appearance in Galilee, he had taken the writings of the prophet Isaiah and he had read from them the promise of Yahweh. You see it here on the screen. Jesus had said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, or he's reading this portion of scripture. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he had anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is something special. We stand amazed at the presence of Jesus of Nazarene as we sung earlier. He has spent his time in Galilee, including these three cities, proving and providing and demonstrating that he was the fulfillment of this promise by healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, as well as preaching and teaching to all who would come and listen and watch him. Many have chosen to leave their vocations to follow and learn from him. He had traveled all along that region, sharing the good news of God's favor to those who would listen and come and follow him. However, as we come to Luke chapter 10, And Jesus is starting to move towards Jerusalem. After 18 months and countless miracles, these cities had not evidenced any revival. They had not shown any repentance. There has not been any renewal to their commitment to Yahweh, the God of Israel and Isaac and Jacob. They had rejected the call of the Son of God. Jesus is informing his disciples that these three cities, that they too will suffer rejection as they travel, or excuse me, that his disciples, the 72, will suffer rejection as they travel throughout the region and the villages and towns sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. So that was one of the things that we learned last week is that as we share the good news, not everyone is going to respond positively to the good news. They're not going to receive it well. There are going to be some who are going to reject it. But the theme of this passage is simply that there are consequences for rejecting the kingdom of God. That's that's the theme of what we're seeing here. There are consequences for rejecting the kingdom of God, that Jesus Christ has come. The final day of judgment is in view in this passage when all will stand before Christ, when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. To make his point, Jesus compares these three cities with three ancient cities that you might have heard of and are familiar with as well, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. The cities of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon were used in scripture usually to depict evil or as symbols of evil. Sodom, as you know, is condemned in the Bible for their wickedness and inhospitality. Walter Liefeld writes that Sodom represents the consequences of ignoring God's warning to repent. In Genesis chapter 18, we had read, Then the Lord had said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry has come to me. And if not, I will know. For those not familiar with the story, Abraham now begins negotiating with God, with Yahweh. Well, what if there are 50 people? Will you, will you, will you uh, uh, destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people? Yahweh says, no, if there's 50. Then Abraham knows, well, what about 45? What about 40? What, what about 30? And he negotiates them down to 10 people. Lord, if there's 10 people that worship you, will you save the city? And Yahweh says, yes, if there's 10 people. As you and I know the story, he could not even find 10. Even with Lot and his family in the city, he could not find 10 righteous men. In Jude's letter, the half-brother of Jesus writes this. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding cities were likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, they serve as examples by undergoing a punishment by eternal fire. And we know that Sodom and Gomorrah is the city that was destroyed by fire and brimstone. It's become a symbol of evil. Even today, if you use the word Sodom and Gomorrah, people know what you're talking about. Tyre and Sidon are, are two other ancient cities that maybe you're not as familiar with. Uh, many of the Tyre exists still today. It lies on the coast of Palestine. For history buffs, you might recall those two cities as part of Phoenicia. They were famous for crafting and sailing ships across the oceans. They were great merchants. Yet for all of their riches, for all of their courage of sailing seas that no one had ever sailed, the cities of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, or I'm sorry, sorry, were used in scriptures as symbols of evil. Dr. Thomas Schreiner notes that Tyre and Sidon were condemned by the Old Testament prophets for their materialism, for their arrogance and wickedness. Let me ask you, does that sound familiar? That's Orange County. That's America today, right? Materialism, arrogance, and wickedness. The original listeners and readers of these comparisons as Jesus is saying this and as Luke's Gentile readers would read this later would have immediately understood the implications of Jesus' words. They most likely would have been offended and even angry at what Jesus was saying. How dare you compare us to those evil, wicked cities? No one likes to be compared to the worst of examples. Even today, it has become popular to compare someone that you do not like or agree with with terms like, oh, you're just Hitler. You're a fascist. You're a racist. You know, all these types of terms. We're quick to label our opponents as the worst of the worst while comparing ourselves to something much better. And these three cities, Capernaum and of Galilee, Bethesda and Chorazon, they, they were the same way. There's no way that we're like these wicked cities. Something much to the effect of saying, well, I may not be as good as Mother Teresa, but at least I'm not as bad as Charles Manson. Talk about unequal weights and measures. Turn forward in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Jesus even tells the story of a Pharisee who compares himself with a tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, you see this type of attitude as we're seeing in these three cities. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one another a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What a prayer. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But look in verse 13. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For anyone who exhausts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the problem, as we're seeing here, is Capernaum and these villages, they're, 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 they're exalting themselves. Look what we see. Jesus is from here. Yet, but in the end, they reject his ministry. The problem is, is we try to compare ourselves with the holy and righteousness of God 
with some man-made standards that we're not even able to keep ourselves. Going back to our passage in Luke 10, Jesus compares judges and denounces these three cities that he administered in. Again, theologian Walter Leefield notes that the comparison with the pagan towns of Tyre and Sidon suggests an utter rebellion against the Lord. This is something that is destructive. This is something that's going to have dire consequences. These ancient towns suffered drastic judgment, speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah and those, for their proud opposition to God and his people. In the same way, he's saying, you present towns of Galilee will suffer the same fate. In response to their rejection of the ministry, Jesus now is going to pronounce woe to you. Woes were a common pronunciation of judgment and condemnation that were used by both the Old Testament prophets and Jesus himself. Thomas Schreiner notes that that the woes were not curses in themselves as you as I think of a curse, but they forecast what will happen if one does not repent and turn to God. It's simple saying, woe to you if you do not go to bed early tonight or in a reasonable time, you will be tired tomorrow. It's not a curse, but saying, hey, if you do this, this is what happens. However, if you repent, things will be different. You and I can understand this. We've seen it in the Bible. Take your Bibles and turn to Jonah. The book of Jonah. It's between the books of Obadiah and Micah. I know I chose chose a tough one for you. It's a short one, four chapters. In Jonah, we see something happening very quickly that's a woe, a foretaste of what will happen if you will not repent. In Jonah chapter one, verse one, we read this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come upon me. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus said, I need you to go to this city. Something's going on in this city. They need to repent. Their evil has gotten so great that it is now at my attention, so to speak. Now, most of us know the story from there. Instead of heading straight to Nineveh, Jonah sets sail in the opposite direction. However, he could not flee or hide from Yahweh. What a silly thing. God causes a strong storm that frightens the experienced salty sailors. Jonah tells them that they must now throw him into the sea and God will relent and calm the storm. So reluctantly, they listen to a words. They throw him out to sea. And as you and I know the story, he falls into the water and he's swallowed by a giant fish. After three days of nothing but darkness and seafood, Jonah finally cries out in chapter 2, verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and he heard my voice. For you cast me into deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Again, we're seeing an inside and an outside. He's called to, he's called, uh, he, uh, Jonah is called to call Nineveh to repentance. But here we see that Jonah, Jonah himself must humble himself and repent first. The Lord hears his cry, speaks to the fish, and it vomits Jonah out onto dry land. Humbled, Jonah, Jonah lead, leads or heads to Nineveh, where he preaches in chapter 3 of verse 4, or verse 4 of chapter 3. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown is his message. How popular do you think that was as he walked around the city? 
I'm probably not very popular. And the people of Nineveh, though, believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh that Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and set in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout the city. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not eat. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Why? Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is at his hands. Why? Because he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And of course, we know the story. God responds to a humble, broken, and contrite heart. In verse 10 of chapter 3, in verse, or I should say in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Jonah, it says that when God saw what they did, their repentance, that they turned from their evil ways, that God relented of the disaster that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, you need to remember that Nineveh was a very wicked city that was very cruel and harsh, especially towards Israel. It was a very militaristic society. They were bent on warfare and destruction. One commentary points out that the Ninevites were well known for their sadgery and plundering cities. When they conquered a nation, they would torture and murder cold-bloodedly. They were known to burn boys and girls alive and torture adults, actually tearing the skin from their bodies and wearing them as faces on their, over their own faces, leaving them to die in scorching sun. And rather than to hide such depravity, they celebrated and proclaimed it. They even built monuments to their own cruelty. He goes on to write that the, the, the population of Nineveh was large, huge, historically at this time, around one million people. That's an immense size in those days. It was a mighty capital of Assyria, the superpower of her day. It required three days to circle the city of Nineveh. They lived large. They enjoyed life. They had the best of chariots, the finest of foods, the most exotic of entertainment. It had an extensive business and commercial system like none in the world at its time. In addition, it had ruled the world for over 200 years and was the strongest military power and might in the world. But yet God says you must repent. And instead of standing up against God, they repented and God relented. That was a woe. Take care of what God's word says. However, none of that could save them from the righteous anger and judgment of the Almighty and the Holy God if they did not repent. Capernaum and Bethesda and Chorazin, though they were nothing like Nineveh, they were not as wicked as Nineveh in any form or fashion, they would face the same fate as Nineveh if they would not repent. Because unlike Nineveh, they chose not to repent or accept Jesus as Messiah. They rejected both the message and the man. You may ask, well, what are these three cities that have done so bad? What, what have they really done? Scripture hasn't told us they haven't beaten Jesus. They haven't stoned him. It doesn't look like they ran him out of town other than a few instances. They didn't seem to, to try to destroy him. The answer is simply as though that they had the privilege. They had the privilege 
of witnessing and receiving the benefits of Jesus' teachings and healings. They saw their loved ones uh, exercised from the demons that lived within them. They saw the miraculous works. However, all that they witnessed, their hearts were still hardened against him. They desired the things or the gifts of Jesus, but not his person or the message of the kingdom. They rejected his claim to be the Messiah, the ruler. And so Jesus ends his pronouncement of woe by turning back to the 72 and declaring to them in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me, as he now looks at them and says, the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus is simply pointing out that to reject the good news of the gospel declared by his disciples, they are in actuality actuality rejecting both Jesus and the Messiah and the Father who sent them. The consequences of rejecting Jesus, listen to this as simple, as facing the full wrath of the Almighty and Holy God. So he wants them to understand this that there are consequences for rejecting the ministry of Christ. Now, there are several things that we can learn from this passage. I know it's kind of a difficult one, but there are several things that we can learn from this passage. First, we need to understand that judgment and punishment await those who reject Christ. That's very simple. Punishment and judgment awaits those who reject Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, the one who spoke all things into existence, and he holds it all together. He is more than just a a teacher, a regular rabbi. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, you see it here on the monitor. Scripture says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him things, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of Christ, or of God, was pleased to dwell. So we must understand Jesus is more than just a mere man, a teacher, a healer, or an exorcist. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the one sent to pay the penalty of our sin and earn our righteousness, whereby you and I may become sons of God and enjoy his presence for eternity. Continuing in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says of Jesus that through him, through Jesus, God is reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. This is how God is reconciling man is through the blood of Jesus. And any and all who reject his life-saving work will face judgment. The writer of Hebrew warns that those that have heard the gospel and even responded favorably to the good news but continue in their sin to just receive the gifts of Christ, but not truly repent. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation and judgment and a fury of fire that will consume his adversaries. And I pray that none of us at that day of a judgment will find ourselves as adversaries of Christ. 
He continues to warn in chapter 10 of Hebrews. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? He then declares it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In his previous chapter, he alerts his readers. It's here on the screen. It just is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is the promise that God has for those that receive him. So let us not find ourselves with these three cities. Let us not just accept the gifts of God and not the Son of God himself. You see, here's the danger. Because I think there are many professing Christians and those who say they are the church who, who want the gifts of God. You know, they want joy. They want a happiness. They, they want a networking uh, uh, um, place where they can find friends and find businesses. They, they want the, the fellowship of God's people, but they don't truly want God himself. They just want the good things from God, but not the things of Christ. And you and I need to be warned of that, that we may not be in the same way. That was the problem with these three cities. Yeah, give us your great works, but we really don't want you. It's like a husband going to a wife and saying, man, I love the way you cook. I love the way you clean. I love the way you take care of the kids. But, you know, I really just don't like you. Let that never be said. But yet many times we're guilty of the same thing when it comes to God. Secondly, so not only we see that judgment and punishment awaits those who reject Christ, but secondly, we see that Jesus as a judge has a special knowledge called contingent knowledge. Contingent knowledge, meaning that he knows what, would ha- what, what they would have done. He knows what would have happened with Sodom and, and Tyre and Sidon. Jesus says that these ancient evil cities would have repented if they had saw the works that Jesus had done. But God had not decided to do that at that time. He says, they have something that they would have repented of, but you are seeing it, you are experiencing it, you have received it, but yet you yourself have not repented. Scripture informs us that Jesus as God has all the attributes of God. In this passage, we see the foreknowledge or the special knowledge of God on display. Now, real quickly, foreknowledge many times is often misunderstood and a malign concept with many assumptions being lost. Dr. Lawson points out four truths about God's knowledge that you and I need to understand. Number one, you'll see this on the monitor so you can make it easy for you. And you may just want to take a picture of it if you're taking notes. Is that God has never looked in the future and learned anything. Okay? God doesn't look through the annals of history or look into the future and say, oh, that's what's going to happen. Nor has he ever looked in the future and see anything that has not already been ordained by him. Number two, foreknowledge does not mean foresight. It means more accurately, it refers to God's previous choice to love a certain group of people. The word know, number three, in scripture can mean a loving and intimate relationship. 
It doesn't always mean uh, simply a knowledge of facts. But number four, and this is where we're at, is this is what we need to know about God's knowledge. That God knows all things possible. He knows what might have happened, but did not actually come to pass. He knows all variations of possibilities. So in other words, he can look at your life and say, hey, if you and you and your family had not moved to Egypt, here's what your life would have been. Here's what Sean's life would have been without Lydia. No, we couldn't imagine that, could we? But he says, this is what I know, all various possibilities. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, I have this quote on here, I believe, on the monitor. He says, God knows both the micro and macro dimensions of the entire universe. He knows everything, every little thing of life. He numbers the very hair on our heads. Not only does he know what we will do but before we do it, but he also, he knows all the options we could have chosen at the moment. In other words, he knows all the forks in the road. He knows what way your life would have gone. He knows all contingencies. His foreknowledge is perfect and absolute. He is not a great chess player who must wait to see what you will do before he acts. He knows absolutely what he'll do before we even do it. Before a word is even formed on our lips, he knows it all together. So consider that. When, Jesus, when we look at God's knowledge, he knows all possibilities of anything that ever could happen. But yet he chose this. We looked at that uh, during our problem of evil. Uh, some of you might remember in our adult core class. So how does that help us today? As Jesus says, I know that if I would have traveled to Sodom and Gomorrah, to Tyre and Sidon, and if I would have presented myself before them, and if I would have healed the blind, exercised demons, if I would have walked on water, if I would have fed 5,000, Tyre, Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and Sidon would repent. Just as God knew that Nineveh would repent. Jonah did as well, but he didn't want, he, he was, that, he didn't want that to happen. He says, but listen to you, you would not. So you think that you are a great city, but in reality, you're worse than Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. That's terrible, terrible. It serves also as a testimony of who Jesus is. Catch this. Jesus is proclaiming an attribute of God. Don't, don't miss that in that short passage. He is saying, I know exactly what would happen in this possibility. Let's not overlooking. Jesus is declaring the attributes of God himself. This would not have been missed by those people. And let us not miss it as well. This is a testimony to the divinity of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we learn that there seems to be different levels of culpability and punishment in the day of judgment. Did you catch what Jesus said to the first two cities? He says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And again to Capernaum, he says, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In other words, what Jesus seems to be teaching is that there's different levels of culpability and punishment in that last day of judgment. 
surprising his listeners, Jesus saying that the people of ancient and the evil wicked cities of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon will experience a judgment that will be less severe than their own. Now, to you and I, that does not seem right. That Capernaum will be judged harsher than a city that ripped off the flesh of its victims? It killed women and children indiscriminately? But that's what we're seeing here. You see, the greatest sin in all the world is to reject Christ. And you and I must understand that. This is shocking. But what Jesus is teaching is that since the cities of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethesda have enjoyed a greater revelation, they have experienced the gospel, more is required of them. Especially Capernaum, the base of Jesus' Galilean ministry. They were the recipients, as I said before, and witnesses of many of his teachings, healings, and a miraculous power. They then have a higher degree of responsibility. They had a place of privilege. Hence why Jesus said, you shall be brought down to Hades. You think as Capernaum that you'll be raised and exalted, but he says, no, you'll be cast down to Hades. And to the other two cities, he says, it'll be more bearable for Sodom on that day of judgment. This reflects Jesus' teaching that we'll see later this year in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. It's here in the monitor. But the one who did not know, speaking of a servant, and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. But everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from to whom they are entrusted much, they will demand the more. So let me ask, what would the words of Christ be to Orange County, to the city of Orange, to America today? What about to Europe, who for the most places, all the early churches that were built in the early days are now mosques or closed or museums. What will he say to them who've neglected such a great salvation, who've rejected the word of Christ? Or maybe to you who grew up in a Christian home, maybe went to a Christian school and said, listen, you've heard the words of God since you were a long, young little person. One of the first things you said was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What will your degree of culpability and punishment be? If in the end, you love the things of Jesus, but you didn't love Jesus himself. Not enough to truly follow him. You see, we think that we can follow him. And if we read his word, if we go to church, if we give some money. But yet, if there's not an uncompromising commitment, he says, I never knew you. You see, we compare ourselves. Well, at least I go to church on Sunday. Lots of people go to church. There's lots of unsaved people going to church every week. Sometimes probably much more than you and I do. They probably read the Bible more than we do, pray more than we do. God says, that's some guarantee. Do not reject the full message of the gospel. Though these cities responded first favorably to the works of Christ, this is important. They did not have a genuine faith. Instead of responding with sackcloth and ashes, demonstrating repentance, they rejected the message of Christ. You may say, sackcloth and ashes, well, sackcloth was just a rough fabric. 
It was made from camels and usually worn right next to the skin to express grief and sorrow. We saw that with Jonah and Nineveh. We see that here is that there's a demonstration. Ashes is something that they would cover over their head or set down and to symbolize their repentance and mourning. It, it was a case of deep emotion. And see, what we need to see is it's more than just saying, I am sorry, you're right. I apologize. Repentance is demonstrated by turning and following Christ. When we see that they will be brought down to Hades, Hades is a Greek word or for the Hebrew word Sheol, which just means the grave, the place of the dead. It is a place of punishment for the unrighteous. You and I need to understand that there is a day of judgment. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter. We're near the close. 2 Peter chapter 2. It seems that Jesus is teaching that on the day of final judgment, God takes into account opportunity of what you heard about Christ and that there are degrees of punishment for the wicked as well as degrees of reward for the faithful. In verse 4 of, of 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 4. The apostle writes this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. Again, he says it's better for them than for you. Making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In other words, your life may seem right and rosy today. We may even cry out, but what about the wicked? Why does it seem that the evil are, are, are enjoying life? Why does it seem they get richer, but we get poorer? They seem to have more liberties and we do not. God says it doesn't matter because in the end, all of that will be judged. He goes on to say, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despising authorities. God knows how to rescue us and to keep us until that day. But there will be a day when we will face the consequences or the rewards of either rejecting Christ or being faithful. And so as we look at these cities, you and I have a warning that we not fall into rejecting Christ. But also as the 72, we must understand that there is a judgment day. We are just called to be faithful. Recognizing this, listen, if they are rejecting Christ, they are not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Father. And you and I are to leave it up to the judgment of God. God has called us just to be faithful. In closing, I want to make just a few apical points very quickly. As heralds of Christ, as following in the steps and the heritage of those 72 men, 
You and I have a simple message to proclaim to our friends and to our loved ones. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We are to employ our listeners because of that. God wants us to be reconciled. We need to be reconciled to God through the work of Christ. Our role is to proclaim the good news of the gospel, trusting the results to the rework of the Holy Spirit. Let's not, let's not trust in how big our church is, how many people come, or how good our programs are. Let me tell you, there are churches with wonderful programs, with Disney-like uh, facilities, with, with thousands of people coming that will stand in worse judgment than a small church that's just being faithful. So let's trust in just being faithful what God has called us to do. However, let us not trust in our smallness or in our doctrinal purity to the fact that we ourselves wind up being Capernaum. We love the things of God, the teachings of God, but we don't love Christ himself. There's the danger on both ends. Number two, one day all of humanity will stand before Christ and give account to what they've heard and how they've responded. And be honest, that's where I want to be here this morning. I want you to respond positively to the words of Christ. Whether you're here this morning, whether you're watching me later, listening to me later, is I want you to respond positively to Christ. Because one day you will stand before him. And there will be no excuse. God knows all possibilities. There will be no excuse for you. God says, this is the world I've created. These are the opportunities. There is no one, at least in America, that cannot say they have not had the opportunity to hear Christ. It's our duty to make sure the word is spread throughout the world, either by sending and supporting ministries or missionaries to go to sacrifice or to go ourselves. Yet we must never forget whether we're going or whether we're sending. We are all ambassadors for Christ. And then number three, friend, if you don't know Christ, please come in today. Do not neglect so great a salvation. Do not reject Christ nor the Father, but acknowledge your need of a Savior. Repent and confess your sin and follow Jesus that you too may be embraced by him as he eagerly waits to save those who love him. There we head bowed and already closed. I'm going to ask Randy to go ahead and come on up. I just wanted us to pause and consider this passage. It's a difficult passage. It, it, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles that we like from something. It's kind of a, kind of sometimes a passage we just read and then go past very quickly. But there's some nuggets there. We need to trust. Because one day there is that final judgment coming. And we want to make sure that all within our sphere has heard the word of God. And we can do all the praying and the loving and the kindness that we can that God may grant them repentance. Would you pray and ask what God wants you to call? Maybe it's time for you to make that uncompromising commitment. Maybe it's time for you to just get involved in serving and sharing the gospel, pleading for your loved ones and your friends to come and be reconciled to Christ. Or maybe it's time for you today to taste and see that God is good. Whatever the Holy Spirit's calling, would you do so today? Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast.
To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.